chapter thirteen of abraham lincoln a history volume ten this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org abraham lincoln a history volume ten by john hay and john george nicolay chapter thirteen the capture of jefferson davis when jefferson davis and the remnant of the confederate cabinet with the more important of their department archives left richmond on the night of april two in consequence of lee's retreat they proceeded to danville southwest of richmond arriving there the following morning in a conference between davis and lee in which the probability of abandoning richmond was discussed they had agreed upon this point at which to endeavor to unite the armies of lee and johnston first to attack and beat sherman and then return and defeat grant but grant so far from permitting lee to execute the proposed junction did not even allow him to reach danville lee had been pressed so hard that he had not found opportunity to inform davis where he was going and this absence of news probably served to give davis an intimation that their preconcerted plans were not likely to reach fulfilment nevertheless the rebel president made a show of confidence rooms were obtained and he says the different departments resumed their routine labors though it may be doubted whether in these labors they earned the compensation which the confederate states promised them two days after his arrival at danville jefferson davis added one more to his many rhetorical efforts to fire the southern heart on the fifth he issued a proclamation in which after reciting the late disasters in as hopeful a strain as possible he broke again into his never-failing grandiloquence we have now entered upon a new phase of the struggle relieved from the necessity of guarding particular points our army will be free to move from point to point to strike the enemy in detail far from his base let us but will it and we are free animated by that confidence in your spirit and fortitude which never yet failed me i announce to you fellow-countrymen that it is my purpose to maintain your cause with my whole heart and soul that i will never consent to abandon to the enemy one foot of the soil of any of the states of the confederacy that virginia noble state whose ancient renown has been eclipsed by her still more glorious recent history whose bosom has been bared to receive the main shock of this war whose sons and daughters have exhibited heroism so sublime as to render her illustrious in all time to come that virginia with the help of the people and by the blessing of providence shall be held and defended and no peace ever be made with the infamous invaders of her territory if by the stress of numbers we should be compelled to a temporary withdrawal from her limits or those of any other border state we will return until the baffled and exhausted enemy shall abandon in despair his endless and impossible task of making slaves of a people resolved to be free in his book davis is frank enough to admit that this language in the light of subsequent events may fairly be said to have been over sanguine 
he probably very soon reached this conviction for almost before the ink was dry on the document a son of general henry a wise escaping through the federal lines on a swift horse brought him information of the surrender of lee's army to grant rumor also reaching him that the federal cavalry was pushing southward west of danville the confederate government again hastily packed its archives into a railroad train and moved to greensboro north carolina its reception at this place was cold and foreboding the headquarters of the government remained on the train at the depot only jefferson davis and secretary trenholm who was ill were provided with lodgings from this point davis sent a dispatch to general johnston soliciting a conference either at greensboro or at the general's headquarters and in response to this request johnston went without delay to greensboro arriving there on the morning of april twelve within an hour or two both generals johnston and beauregard were summoned to meet the confederate president in a council of war there being also present the members of the rebel cabinet namely benjamin secretary of state mallory secretary of the navy and regan postmaster-general the meeting was held in a room some twelve by sixteen feet in size on the second floor of a small dwelling and contained a bed a few chairs and a table with writing materials the infatuation under which davis had plunged his section into rebellion against the government pitting the south with its disparity of numbers and resources against the north still beset him in the hour of her collapse and the agony of her surrender he had figured out how the united armies of lee and johnston could successively demolish sherman and grant but he could not grasp the logic of common sense that by the same rule the united armies of grant and sherman would make short work of johnston alone whenever they could reach him the spirit of obstinate confidence with which he entered upon the interview may be best inferred from the description of it written by the two principal actors themselves davis says i did not think we should despair we still had effective armies in the field and a vast extent of rich and productive territory both east and west of the mississippi whose citizens had evinced no disposition to surrender ample supplies had been collected in the railroad depots and much still remained to be placed at our disposal when needed by the army in north carolina my motive therefore in holding an interview with the senior generals of the army in north carolina was not to learn their opinion as to what might be done by negotiation with the united states government but to derive from them information in regard to the army under their command and what it was feasible and advisable to do as a military problem johnston's statement shows still more distinctly how impossible it was for davis to lay aside the airs of dictator we had supposed that we were to be questioned concerning the military resources of our department in connection with the question of continuing or terminating the war but the president's object seemed to be to give not to obtain information for addressing the party he said that in two or three weeks he would have a large army in the field by bringing back into the ranks those who had abandoned them in less desperate circumstances and by calling out the enrolled men whom the conscript bureau with its forces had been unable to bring into the army neither opinions nor information was asked 
and the conference terminated pollard the southern historian is probably not far wrong in saying that this was an interview of inevitable embarrassment and pain the two generals johnston and beauregard were those who had experienced most of the prejudice and injustice of the president he had always felt aversion for them and it would have been an almost impossible excess of christian magnanimity if they had not returned something of resentment and coldness to the man who they believed had arrogantly domineered over them and more than once sought their ruin now when davis without even the preface of asking their opinions bade these two men resuscitate his military and political power and transform him from a fugitive to a commander-in-chief it is not to be wondered at that the interview terminated without result matters were thus left in an awkward situation for all parties the rebel chief had no promise of confidence or support the generals no authority to negotiate or surrender the cabinet no excuse to intervene by advice or protest to either party this condition was however opportunely relieved by the arrival during the afternoon of the secretary of war breckinridge who was the first to bring them the official and undoubted intelligence of the surrender of lee with his whole army of which they had hitherto been informed only by rumour and which they had of course hoped to the last moment might prove unfounded the fresh news naturally opened up another discussion and review of the emergency between the various individuals and seems at length to have brought them to a frank avowal of their real feelings to each other in private johnston and beauregard holding military council together agreed in the opinion that the southern confederacy was overthrown this opinion johnston also repeated to breckinridge and mallory both of whom it would seem entertained the same view the absence of anything like full confidence and cordial intimacy between davis and his advisers is shown by the fact that these two members of his cabinet were unwilling to tell their chief the truth which both recognized and urged upon general johnston the duty of making the unwelcome suggestion that negotiations to end the war should be commenced breckinridge promised to bring about an opportunity and it was evidently upon his suggestion that davis called together a second conference of his cabinet and his generals there is a conflict of statement as to when it took place both davis and mallory in their accounts grouped together all the incidents as if they occurred at a single meeting which mallory places on the evening of the twelfth while johnston's account mentions the two separate meetings the first on the morning of the twelfth and the second on the morning of the thirteenth there being however substantial agreement between all as to the points discussed of this occasion so full of historical interest we fortunately have the records of two of the participants general johnston writes being desired by the president to do it we compared the military forces of the two parties to the war ours an army of about twenty thousand infantry and artillery and five thousand mounted troops those of the united states three armies that could be combined against ours which was insignificant compared with either grants of one hundred and eighty thousand men sherman's of one hundred and ten thousand at least and canby's of sixty thousand 
odds of seventeen or eighteen to one which in a few weeks could be more than doubled i represented that under such circumstances it would be the greatest of human crimes for us to attempt to continue the war for having neither money nor credit nor arms but those in the hands of our soldiers nor ammunition but that in their cartridge boxes nor shops for repairing arms or fixing ammunition the effect of our keeping the field would be not to harm the enemy but to complete the devastation of our country and ruin of its people i therefore urged that the president should exercise at once the only function of government still in his possession and open negotiations for peace the members of the cabinet present were then desired by the president to express their opinions on the important question general breckinridge mr mallory and mr regan thought that the war was decided against us and that it was absolutely necessary to make peace mr benjamin expressed the contrary opinion the latter made a speech for war much like that of sempronius in addison's play secretary mallory's account is even more full of realistic vividness he represents davis after introducing the dreaded topic by several irrelevant subjects of conversation and coming finally to the situation of the country as saying of course we all feel the magnitude of the moment our late disasters are terrible but i do not think we should regard them as fatal i think we can whip the enemy yet if our people will turn out we must look at matters calmly however and see what is left for us to do whatever can be done must be done at once we have not a day to lose a pause ensued general johnston not seeming to deem himself expected to speak when the president said we should like to hear your views general johnston upon this the general without preface or introduction his words translating the expression which his face had worn since he entered the room said in his terse concise demonstrative way as if seeking to condense thoughts that were crowding for utterance my views are sir that our people are tired of the war feel themselves whipped and will not fight our country is overrun its military resources greatly diminished while the enemy's military power and resources were never greater and may be increased to any desired extent we cannot place another large army in the field and cut off as we are from foreign intercourse i do not see how we could maintain it in fighting condition if we had it my men are daily deserting in large numbers and are taking my artillery teams to aid their escape to their homes since lee's defeat they regard the war as at an end if i march out of north carolina her people will all leave my ranks it will be the same as i proceed south through south carolina and georgia and i shall expect to retain no man beyond the by-road or cow-path that leads to his house my small force is melting away like snow before the sun and i am hopeless of recruiting it we may perhaps obtain terms which we ought to accept the tone and manner almost spiteful in which the general jerked out these brief decisive sentences pausing at every paragraph left no doubt as to his own convictions when he ceased speaking whatever was thought of his statements and their importance was fully understood they elicited neither comment nor inquiry the president who during their delivery had sat with his eyes fixed upon a scrap of paper which he was folding and refolding abstractedly and who had listened without a change of position or expression broke the silence by saying in a low even tone what do you say 
general beauregard i concur in all general johnston has said he replied another silence more eloquent of the full appreciation of the condition of the country than words could have been succeeded during which the president's manner was unchanged davis's optimism had taken an obstinate form and even after these irrefutable arguments and stern decisions he remained unconvinced he writes that he never expected a confederate army to surrender while it was able either to fight or to retreat but sustained only by the sophomoric eloquence of mr benjamin he had no alternative he inquired of johnston how terms were to be obtained to which the latter answered by negotiation between military commanders proposing that he should be allowed to open such negotiations with sherman to this davis consented and upon johnston's suggestion secretary mallory took up a pen and at davis's dictation wrote down the letter to sherman which we have quoted elsewhere and the results of which have been related the council of war over general johnston returned to his army to begin negotiations with sherman on the following day april fourteen davis and his party without waiting to hear the result left greensboro to continue their journey southward the dignity and resources of the confederate government were rapidly shrinking railroad travel had ceased on account of burned bridges and it could no longer even maintain the state enjoyed in its car at greensboro we are not informed what became of the archives its personnel president cabinet and sundry staff officers scraped together a lot of miscellaneous transportation composed of riding horses ambulances and other vehicles which over roads rendered almost impassable by mud made their progress to the last degree vexatious and toilsome the country was so full of fugitives that horse-stealing seems to have become for the time an admitted custom and privilege we have the statement of davis's private secretary that eight or ten young mississippians one of them an officer who volunteered to become the rebel president's bodyguard equipped themselves by pressing the horses of neighboring farmers rendering necessary a premature and somewhat sudden departure in advance of the official party obtaining shelter by night when they could and camping at other times the distinguished fugitives made their way to charlotte north carolina where they arrived on the eighteenth of april since the confederate government had considerable establishments at charlotte orders were dispatched to the quartermaster to prepare accommodations and this request was reasonably satisfied for all the members of the party except its chief the quartermaster met them near the town and explained that though quarters could be furnished for the rest of us he had as yet been able to find only one person willing to receive mr davis saying the people generally were afraid that whoever entertained him would have his house burned by the enemy that indeed it was understood threats to that effect had been made everywhere by stoneman's cavalry there seemed to be nothing to do but to go to the one domicile offered it was on the main street of the town and was occupied by mr bates a man said to be of northern birth a bachelor of convivial habits the local agent of the southern express company apparently living alone with his negro servants and keeping a sort of open house where a broad well-equipped sideboard was the most conspicuous feature of the situation not at all a seemly place for mr davis 
mr davis was perforce obliged to accept this entertainment and whether he failed to realize the significance of such treatment or whether he was moved by his suppressed indignation to a defiant self-assertion when a detachment of rebel cavalry passing along the street saluted him with cheers and called him out for a speech after the usual compliments to soldiers he expressed his own determination not to despair of the confederacy but to remain with the last organized band upholding the flag and this feeling he again emphasized during his stay in charlotte by a remark to his private secretary i cannot feel like a beaten man the stay at charlotte was prolonged evidently to wait for news from johnston's army no information came till april twenty three when breckinridge secretary of war arrived bringing the memorandum agreement made by sherman and johnston on the eighteenth the memorandum seems to have been discussed at a cabinet meeting held on the morning of the twenty fourth and mr davis yielded to the advice they all gave him to accept and ratify the agreement he wrote a letter to that effect but almost immediately received further information which sherman communicated to johnston that the washington authorities had rejected the terms and agreement and directed sherman to continue his military operations and that sherman had given notice to terminate the armistice this change coupled with the news of the assassination of president lincoln which the party had received on their arrival in charlotte stimulated the hopes of the rebel president and he sent back instructions to johnston to disband his infantry and retreat southward with so much of his cavalry and light artillery as he could bring away against the daily evidence of his own observation and the steady current of advice from his followers he was still dreaming of some romantic or miraculous renewal of his chances and fortunes and in his book written fifteen years afterward he makes no attempt to conceal his displeasure that general johnston refused to obey his desperate and futile orders the armistice expired on the twenty sixth and the fugitive confederate government once more took up its southward flight at starting the party still made show of holding together there were the president most of the members of the cabinet several staff officers and fragments of six cavalry brigades counting about two thousand which had escaped in small parties from johnston's surrender this was enough to form a respectable escort there was still talk of the expedition turning westward and making its way across the mississippi to join kirby smith and magruder but the meagre accounts plainly indicate that davis's advisers fed his hope for politeness sake or to furnish the only pastime with which it was possible to relieve the tedium of their journey for as they proceeded the expedition melted away as if by enchantment davis directed his course toward abbeville south carolina mr mallory records that though they had met no enemy at abbeville the fragments of disorganized cavalry commands which had thus far performed in some respects an escort's duty were found to be reduced to a handful of men anxious only to reach their homes as early as practicable and whose services could not further be relied on almost every cross-road witnessed the separation of comrades in arms who had long shared the perils and privations of a terrific struggle now seeking their several homes to resume their duties as peaceful citizens the members of the cabinet except regan also soon dropped off on various pretexts benjamin decided to pursue another route 
breckinridge remained behind with the cavalry at the crossing of the savannah river and never caught up at washington georgia a little further on mallory halted to attend to the needs of his family davis waited a whole day at washington and finding that neither troops nor leaders appeared the actual situation seems at last to have dawned upon him i spoke to captain campbell of kentucky commanding my escort he writes explained to him the condition of affairs and telling him that his company was not strong enough to fight and too large to pass without observation asked him to inquire if there were ten men who would volunteer to go with me without question wherever i should choose with these two officers three members of his personal staff and postmaster general regan he pushed ahead still nursing his project of crossing the mississippi river davis's private secretary had been sent ahead to join mrs davis and her family party at abbeville south carolina and they continued their journey in advance with a comfortable wagon train after passing washington and georgia reports of pursuit by federal cavalry increased and a more ominous rumor gained circulation that a gang of disbanded confederates was preparing to plunder the train under the idea that it carried a portion of the official treasure apprehension of this latter danger induced the confederate president to hurry forward and overtake his family and during three days he travelled in their company it seems to have been a dismal journey the roads were bad heavy storms were prevailing signs of danger and prospects of capture were continually increasing and they were sometimes compelled to start at midnight and push on through driving rain to make good their concealed flight they halted about five o'clock in the afternoon of may nine to camp and rest in the pine woods by a small stream in the neighborhood of irwinville irwin county near the middle of southern georgia here the situation was discussed and it became clear that any hope of reaching the trans-mississippi country was visionary the determination was finally arrived at to proceed to the east coast of florida and by means of a small sailing vessel stated to be in readiness endeavor to gain the texas coast by sea it was also agreed that davis should at once leave his family and push ahead with a few companions davis explains that he and his special party did not start ahead at nightfall as had been arranged because a rumor reached him that the expected rebel marauders would probably attack the camp that night and that he delayed his departure for the protection of the women and children still intending however to start during the night with this view his own and other horses remained saddled and ready but the camp was undisturbed and fatigue seems to have held its inmates in deep slumber until dawn of may ten when by a complete surprise a troop of federal cavalry suddenly captured the whole party and camp there is naturally some variance in the accounts of the incident but the differences are in the shades of colouring rather than in the essential facts two expeditions had been sent from macon by general james h wilson in pursuit of jefferson davis and his party the one to scour the left the other the right bank of the okmulgee river one under lieutenant colonel henry harnden commanding the first wisconsin cavalry starting on the sixth and the other under lieutenant colonel b d pritchard commanding the fourth michigan cavalry starting on the seventh of may following different routes these two officers met at the village of abbeville georgia in the afternoon of may nine where they compared notes and decided to continue the pursuit by different roads as the chase grew hot smaller detachments from each party spurred on 
learned the location of the slumbering camp and posted themselves in readiness to attack it at daylight but remained unconscious of each other's proximity the fugitives camp was in the dense pine woods a mile and a half north of irwinville pritchard had reached this village after midnight obtained information about the camp and procured a negro boy to guide them to it approaching to within half a mile he halted both to wait for daylight and to send his lieutenant purinton with twenty-five dismounted men to gain the rear of the camp but cautioning him that a part of harnden's command would in all probability approach from that direction and that he must avoid a conflict with them at daybreak writes captain g w lawton of pritchard's force the order was passed in a whisper to make ready to enter the camp the men were alive to the work mounting their horses the column moved at a walk until the tents came in sight and then at the word dashed in the camp was found pitched on both sides of the road on the left hand as we entered were wagons horses tents and men on the right were two wall tents fronting from the road all was quiet in the camp we encountered no guards if there were any out they must have been asleep just at this instant however firing was heard back of the camp where purinton had been sent this created instant confusion and pritchard with most of his force rushed forward through the camp to resist a supposed confederate attack it turned out that despite the precautions taken the detachment of pritchard's men under purinton the fourth michigan had met a detachment of harnden's men the first wisconsin and in the darkness they had mistaken and fired on each other causing two deaths and wounding a number the rush of the cavalry and the firing of course aroused the sleepers and as they emerged from their tents there was a moment of confusion during which only one or two federal soldiers remained in the camp one of these had secured davis's horse which had stood saddled since the previous evening and which a colored servant had just brought to his tent of what ensued we give mr davis's own account i stepped out of my wife's tent and saw some horsemen whom i immediately recognized as cavalry deploying around the encampment i turned back and told my wife these were not the expected marauders but regular troopers she implored me to leave her at once i hesitated from unwillingness to do so and lost a few precious moments before yielding to her importunity my horse and arms were near the road on which i expected to leave and down which the cavalry approached it was therefore impracticable to reach them i was compelled to start in the opposite direction as it was quite dark in the tent i picked up what was supposed to be my raglan a waterproof light overcoat without sleeves it was subsequently found to be my wife's so very like my own as to be mistaken for it as i started my wife thoughtfully threw over my head and shoulders a shawl i had gone perhaps fifteen or twenty yards when a trooper galloped up and ordered me to halt and surrender to which i gave a defiant answer and dropping the shawl and raglan from my shoulders advanced toward him he levelled his carbine at me but i expected if he fired he would miss me and my intention was in that event to put my hand under his foot tumble him off on the other side spring into his saddle and attempt to escape my wife who had been watching when she saw the soldier aim his carbine at me ran forward and threw her arms around me success depended on instantaneous action and recognizing that the opportunity had been lost i turned back and the morning being damp and chilly passed on to a fire beyond the tent colonel pritchard relates in his official report 
upon returning to camp i was accosted by davis from among the prisoners who asked if i was the officer in command and upon my answering him that i was and asking him whom i was to call him he replied that i might call him what or whomsoever i pleased when i replied to him that i would call him davis and after a moment's hesitation he said that was his name he suddenly drew himself up in true royal dignity and exclaimed i suppose that you consider it bravery to charge a train of defenceless women and children but it is theft it is vandalism that the correctness of the report may not be questioned we add the corroborating statement of postmaster general regan the sole member of the rebel cabinet remaining with the party colonel pritchard did not come up for some time after mr davis was made a prisoner when he rode up there was a crowd chiefly of federal soldiers around mr davis he was standing and dressed in the suit he habitually wore he turned toward colonel pritchard and asked who commands these troops colonel pritchard replied without hesitation that he did mr davis said to him you command a set of thieves and robbers they rob women and children colonel pritchard then said mr davis you should remember that you are a prisoner and mr davis replied i am fully conscious of that it would be bad enough to be the prisoner of soldiers and gentlemen i am still lawful game and would rather be dead than be your prisoner colonel pritchard's official report gives the following list of the persons who fell into his hands i ascertained that we had captured jefferson davis and family a wife and four children john h regan his postmaster-general colonels harrison and lubbock a d c to davis burton n harrison his private secretary major maurin and captain moody lieutenant hathaway jeff d howell midshipmen in the rebel navy and twelve private soldiers miss maggie howell sister of mrs davis two waiting-maids one white and one black and several other servants we also captured five wagons three ambulances about fifteen horses and from twenty-five to thirty mules the train was mostly loaded with commissary stores and private baggage of the party the details of the return march are unnecessary there is no allegation that the prisoners were ill-treated they arrived at macon on may thirteenth both captors and prisoners having on the way first learned of the offer of a reward of one hundred thousand dollars for davis's apprehension on the charge of having been an accomplice in the assassination of president lincoln the assumption of davis's guilt and the proclamation offering the reward were not based upon mere public excitement but upon testimony given by witnesses who appeared before the bureau of military justice and which seemed conclusively to prove that the rebel president had taken part in that dreadful conspiracy but this evidence was found to be untrustworthy upon an investigation held by a committee of congress about a year later several of these witnesses retracted their statements and declared that their testimony as given originally was false in every particular no prosecution on this charge was therefore begun against davis but after an imprisonment of about two years in fort monroe he was indicted and arraigned at richmond before the united states circuit court for the district of virginia for the crime of treason and liberated on bail horace greeley garrett smith and cornelius vanderbilt having volunteered to become his principal bondsmen on the third of december eighteen hundred and sixty eight a motion was made to quash the indictment on the ground that the penalties and disabilities denounced against and inflicted on him for his alleged offence by the third section of the fourteenth amendment of the constitution of the united states were a bar to any proceedings upon such indictment 
the court consisting of chief justice chase and judge john c underwood considered the motion and two days later announced that they disagreed in opinion and certified the question to the supreme court of the united states though not announced it was understood that the chief justice held the affirmative and judge underwood the negative three weeks from that day president johnson bestowed upon mr davis and those who had been his followers a liberal and fraternal christmas gift on the twenty fifth of december eighteen hundred and sixty eight he issued a proclamation supplementing the various prior proclamations of amnesty which declared unconditionally and without reservation to all and to every person who directly or indirectly participated in the late insurrection or rebellion a full pardon and amnesty for the offence of treason against the united states or of adhering to their enemies during the late civil war with restoration of all rights privileges and immunities under the constitution and the laws which have been made in pursuance thereof the government of course took no further action in the suit and at a subsequent term of the circuit court the indictment was dismissed on motion of mr davis's counsel the ex-president of the confederate states was thus relieved from all penalties for his rebellion except the disability to hold office imposed by the third section of the fourteenth amendment which congress refused to remove this ended the public career of jefferson davis he returned to his home in mississippi where he lived unmolested nearly a quarter of a century after the downfall of his rebellion emerging from his retirement only by an occasional letter or address in some of these as well as in his elaborate work entitled the rise and fall of the confederate government very guarded undertones revealed an undying animosity to the government of the united states whose destiny he had sought to pervert whose trusts he had betrayed whose honors he had repaid by attempting its destruction and whose clemency he appeared incapable of appreciating even in his defeat he died at new orleans on december sixth eighteen hundred and eighty nine while visiting that city End of chapter thirteen